have been in the book of Hebrews, and this week we are in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's a letter written by an unknown author or unknown authors, as we have several hints that it might have been written by a coalition of men together. Uh, and it was written to the Jewish nation, also known as the Hebrews. Now, it was to tell them that the law of Moses and the temple, which they were so proud of as a nation, that the sacrifices they were continuously making every single day, every single night, had all now accomplished their purpose, that everything had finally been accomplished as to the reason why all of this sacrificial system had even been set up. Don't worry, I will get to that page number when I get to the next one. I promise, I see you waiting. Okay, now, um, everything had accomplished its purpose, and it all perfectly pointed to the nation's desperate need for a savior, one who could come away and tell them and take away the penalty of sins permanently for those who were willing to believe in faith. Now, for us, the, the law and the temple and the sacrifices kind of seem like a bit of a foreign concept, um, mostly because they're things that we don't regularly experience. I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't gone to a temple recently to have a sacrifice burnt in front of an altar to be able to pray to God. So to help us understand the weight of what he is talking about and the impact, let me try to give this a bit of a modern approach. Now, what I'm about to say, my analogy is going to fall woefully short of being a perfect analogy. Uh, I'm, uh, trust me, I understand that. But hopefully, hopefully my analogy will give you an idea of how earth-shattering this letter would have been. So when you think of the United States of America, place we live, when you think of the most American thing you can think of, something that best represents to you what being American looks like, or maybe the American experience, what comes to your mind? Anybody? Freedom, Freedom? okay, yep. Anything else? One nation under God, okay. Anything else? Uh, I, mean, I mean, it could be cheeseburgers. I mean, uh, what, what do you screams American? Anything? Flag. What's that? Flag. Okay, the flag, absolutely. Yeah, I, I put the flag up there just uh, as a visual representation. While, while there are many things that we could all think of when we think of the American identity, um, Things that I think of, okay, as I said this list, it sounded really great. My wife read this list back. She's like, you are a redneck, okay? Because the things that come up to me are, I think of the Statue of Liberty, okay? I think of backyard grilling, okay? You know, you ever get to family and you get to grilling? How about American football or Walmart? Yeah, that, that's where she had me at redneck, okay? But whatever it is that you identify as a major part of your national identity, imagine, imagine for just a second, the things that you think are the most American about you and your family. Someone writes a book and says that everything that you think is American really actually isn't. In fact, everything that you thought they say in their book was defining your culture, what you thought defined your culture actually instead was designed to show you your shortcomings. And instead, that it was actually designed to show you that you had a need for something far greater and that you and your entire family were actually missing the point. Could you see how people might get offended if someone was to write a book and say, hey, hey, Mike, I know you believe this is American, but really you're wrong. 
I mean, you would probably kind of take a little bit of offense. And that's the way this book, the book of Hebrews, could actually be taken by those who had actually replaced their culture and identity and put it on the temple and the sacrifices. The writer of the Hebrews is completely correct in what he's saying. And since the very beginning of this letter, we've been talking about priests and we've been talking about their roles and what they did for the people and how God has used them and how they fell short because they too were sinners, just like you and I. And we've talked about the temple, the place where the sacrifices were made, and how the priest was performing the sacrifices on the behalf of the people every single day, all in a never-ending attempt to wash away the sin that never comes, that, that always comes back. No matter how hard the people try, they try to wash the sin away, but it keeps coming back. The people had taken what was supposed to point them in their need for a relationship with God, and they turned it into their national identity. They were missing the point. And basically, the vast majority of Israel was using temple worship more as a social gathering than it was as a time to come humbly in front of God and get to know him in a better relationship through him, more intimately. Unfortunately, if you look at the majority of the church experience in America, there's a lot of churches that get together more as a social experience than as a time to come and worship God together humbly. And the author's point is that our lives are designed to revolve around our faith and not the other way around. We were designed to have a relationship with our creator, but it was broken when sin came in. And God wanted that relationship back. And when we're honest with ourselves, we're all searching for a way to fill that relationship hole that was left when sin came in. And most of us, for most of us, at one point in life, it means that we follow after anything and everything except for the one who could fill it, which is God. And this is why our author points us to faith. Because it has to be the bedrock of our lives as we pursue God. And this is why he pens out our memory verse. And I told you, I warned you last week if you were here, if you weren't here last week, you, you don't know about this, but I told you we're going to have some missing holes. Does anybody have any idea what the words are in the missing holes? Okay, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Absolutely. Okay, so we've said those words. Let's actually say the whole thing together. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews eleven six. We were designed for relationships. Specifically, we were designed to have a thriving relationship with our creator. We gather together every week to remind and encourage one another to come alongside one another as we pursue what this world cannot give, that this world cannot fill. And we know that God's calling on our lives is worth every single bit of that pursuit. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 10. We're going to see that our author points us to these various things. So our title today is chapter 10, Band-Aids and Batter. Yes, I said the word batter. Yes, we will get there. If you're using the new chair Bibles, I will have this regularly on the screen from this point forward. We are going to be on page 1842. 1842. Now, we have reached the point in the letter as we've been working through the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 here now. 
where the author is starting to reiterate his earlier points. He's kind of going over what he's already said. We actually started seeing the beginning of this in the last chapter. He's wrapping up very heavily what he's already being said. And he's wrapping up his major points about the temple, about the priesthood, about the sacrifices, stuff he's been talking about for the last nine chapters. And he's about to move on to the new core topic of faith. He's about to make a shift. If you've ever heard of the the hall of faith or Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 about faith, that's where he's moving to and how it affects our everyday lives. So in verse one through four, he sums up chapter nine. So the first four verses, we're going to kind of skim through parts of this because a lot of this is going to be a sum up of what you guys already know if you've sat through this. And basically he says that if the sacrificial system had worked, if all of those sacrifices actually worked, then people shouldn't have had to keep making new sacrifices. That a good sacrifice would actually cover sin. Uh, However, this wasn't the case, as the people clearly saw. So this is why in verse 4, if you're with me, I'll also have it on the screen. Verse 4, he says this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, when I was growing up, I was in Boy Scouts. I started in about fourth grade, went all the way up through as a senior in uh, high school, uh, all the way, and I made it all the way to Eagle Scout, actually. To me, there were some really great things about being a scout, Number one, I loved camping. Number two, I loved fire. Number three, I loved knives. I mean, you know, it's a boy's dream. Camping outdoors is something to me that's always been therapeutic. Even if I've spent a horrible night on the ground, on a rock, or in a divot, I still wake up more refreshed than when I do in my bed. There's something about it just brings life out of you, makes you more alive. Even if you've got a crick in your back for the next two days, you're young and you walk it off. Of course, when you're out camping, you have to make a fire. There's, I mean, what's the sense of going camping if you can't have a fire, right? How else are you going to cook your meals? How else are you going to find a random stick in the woods and just start burning it for no other point? I mean, it's a lot of fun to make fire. But boys are drawn to fire. I mean, if you have a fireplace in your home, you know this exact draw. You sit there and you watch the fireplace. It'll crackle and pop for hours on end. Just a beautiful thing to behold. And of course, you can't have fire unless you have wood that is chopped down. And you can't have wood chopped down unless you have something sharp to chop it down with, like a blade or a saw. So I learned early on how to use a knife. I also learned how to sharpen one really well. In fact, it's something I've always prided myself on is I always have a sharp knife with me. Uh, I was always told it was better to have a sharp blade than a dull one, and I've always taken that to heart. So I've always got a very sharp knife. And as any good story of a young boy with a very sharp knife goes, it got me once nicely. So one time I was trying to open a Slim Jim packet. I was trying to tear it by those pull tabs. You ever tried that? And something about a Slim Jim packet, it just, your fingers keep slipping off and I couldn't do it. And I was like, I have a knife. So I took my knife, I unfolded it. And uh, back then the knives didn't lock. They actually, they just fold open. I've actually still got it. And so I took the knife, I pulled the Slim Jim up and I took one foot swipe. I chopped off that Slim Jim, no problem. And I also took the majority of the skin on my right index finger's knuckle. Next time we shake hands, you can see the scar. I could see bone by the time it was done. So yes, it was a nice deep cut. Now, when you cut yourself deep, you don't just bleed. You bleed. You ever seen bleeding before? Now, of course, I was a Boy Scout. I had been in Scouts for some time, so I knew first aid. 
I know, first aid. If you have gauze or something to catch the blood and a little bit of pressure, eventually, in theory, the bleeding will stop, right? Not when you've taken that large of a chunk off, trust me. Well, it refused to stop bleeding, no matter what. I tried every Band-Aid that I started with a little one. I got a little bit of a larger one. I got some gauze. I even went and got teepee, and I started rolling teepee around. And every time it bled through, I'd just get more teepee. So I had like this half inch to a full inch thing around my finger of bloody teepee, just kind of holding it, trying to hide what I had done. Nothing that I was doing was stopping my, my worsening situation. And our author says that the nation was doing the exact same thing. They were trying to cover this gaping wound with a Band-Aid solution. And it wasn't working. The nation was hemorrhaging. And something desperately needed to be changed. And that change that he points us to is the sacrifice of Jesus. And he tells us that in Jesus' one act on the cross, we finally have our solution. So if you're with me, in verse 10, he writes these words. By that will, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in my story, desperately trying to cover up my shame and my shortcomings of accidentally cutting myself as a child, fearing that my dad was going to take away my knife, my father did finally take a notice of my wounds. It's like I said, it's really hard to hide your wounds when you've got a, about an inch of toilet paper wrapped around a bloody finger. Uh, eventually, mom or dad are going to notice. Uh, Nick, don't try to hide anything. I will eventually see it. Just, you know, learn from my mistakes. So just as my father eventually took notice of my wounds and what I needed help with, our heavenly father took notice of our spiritual shortcomings. And he took action by sending Jesus to help us. And this is the third time in this book that our author has used this exact wording. And it's the fourth time overall. He once told us something incredible about Jesus and his one sacrifice. Jesus' one sacrifice, there's something about it. The emphasis here is on the word one. In chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 9, and here in chapter 10, we're told again and again that Jesus died once for all. He keeps reiterating this. He wants us to know something about this wording. There's something that he's trying to drive home. Jesus only had to die one time to cover sins. And not just the sins of the people in his lifetime 2,000 years ago, but our sins and our children's sins and their children's children's sins and so on and so forth for every life that will ever live. His one sacrifice being perfect covers perfectly all who need sin covered. The sacrifice has been made for us, and our job is reflected in our memory verse, that without faith it is impossible to please him. We have to take his sacrifice by faith. It is our job to believe it to be true, and in our lives we are supposed to live as it is true throughout our lives. So we come, we're actually going to come back to verse 10 when we get to verse 26. So at the end of the sermon, I'll actually pull it back to this very point. But I want to follow what the author has written about first. So in verses 11 through 18, we have again reiterated what we've already been told in Hebrews about the duties of the priests and how Jesus has perfected that very role. 
And then in verse 19, so 11 through 18 is more reiteration. Like I said, a lot of this chapter is reiterating what's already been said. Uh, in verse 19, he moves to some application. This is where I really want to focus on for a minute. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So before Jesus' sacrifice, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies into the presence of God, I said this a while back. Does anybody remember what they did to the priest before he entered into the Holy of Holies? Yes, ma'am. They tied a rope. They, so they tied a rope around his ankle. They also put bells on him as well, so they knew when he stopped moving. They tied a rope around his ankle, and they did this just in case God struck him dead at any moment while he was in there. And you're like, why would God strike the high priest dead? Well, God is perfect, and he has to perfectly deal with sin whenever it's in his presence. Automatically, he deals with sin, and the penalty for sin is death. So any unconfessed, uh, oh, wow, unconfessed sin in the priest's life, and he would be dead. So as the religious leader of the nation, you would think that he might be smart enough to not go into God's presence with unconfessed sin, but he was human. He was a sinner. What if he had a random thought? You ever had a random thought? I had those all the time. What if you had one of those random thoughts that caused him to sin right then and there? God would have to deal with the sin. Because of God's nature, he cannot be around sin. And in his presence, God has to automatically deal with sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that would kind of be nerve-wracking. I mean, could you imagine what am I going to think? Or what am I going to do while I'm in there in the presence of God? What could go wrong? Well, just about anything, it feels like. So what if you entered his presence just fine, all your sins are confessed, you're doing, you're, and then you have one of those thoughts. And our author tells us that because of the blood of Jesus, we can now go into the holiest area, metaphorically, we don't have a temple anymore, with a boldness. We can go into presence of God with boldness. Now, boldness can often come with this idea of an overt confidence. You ever seen somebody that has a little bit too much confidence? Or maybe a brave defiance. But that's really not what the word here is trying to say. The word here is a Greek word. It's parasia. It's actually got a, a double R role in it. Parasia. And it, and it speaks more towards a confidence than it does anything else. Telling us that we can go into the God's presence with confidence. That we can know that we can go in. That we can speak to him openly without fear of retribution. And when he sees us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus, and he sees us as perfect because Jesus is perfect. And not only do we now finally have direct access to him, but we no longer have to constantly fear for our lives in his presence. To us, his presence can now be the calm that it was supposed to be. Remember, if you remember anything about the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the day every single day. They didn't walk in fear. They had a calm in his presence. God's presence was actually a calming effect on their lives. And Jesus has brought us back to that point where we can be in his presence calmly and assuredly. In verse 22, it continues on. It says these words, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So beginning here in verse 22 and continuing on through 25, we have a series of three different let us sayings. He says, let us, let us, let us. And we're going to look at those. First, he says in 22, uh, let us draw near. Then he says, let us hold fast in 23. And then let us consider one another in 24. And 25 actually just wraps up 24. So first he tells us that we should draw near. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the Jewish people 
that would have had a certain understanding of these things. And the way that he says this verse, talking about the one that's up on the screen, the way he's referencing it, it's actually about the Mosaic law. You see, a priest, as he was being commissioned for the priesthood, had to go uh, through a certain cleansing ceremony. Part of that was being washed by water and then sprinkled by blood. Yes, part of sprinkling of blood was actually cleaning you to be able to serve through God's law and the, under the Mosaic law. It was a ceremonial washing and cleansing. Under Christ, we are a nation of priests, and we serve our high priest, Jesus Christ. Through the wording here, he's saying that we have been set aside for a special service to God. He's saying you as a people, if you have believed in Christ, God has set you aside for a special service. And as his followers, we have a special assignment from him. And we find out what that looks like because it looks different for each of us. Mine and yours is not going to look the same because he, he takes into account who I am and what purpose he has for me. So it'll look different, but we glorify him yet the same either way. Now, the wording full assurance has nothing to do with how big or how little your faith is. It has nothing to do with your amount of faith either, but rather it has everything to do with the object of our faith. As real faith depends on the object of faith, not the size of your faith. Anne and I were actually talking about this very thing earlier this morning. In the Bible, the, it never says that you have to have a bigger or a greater faith. In fact, the only time faith is ever mentioned, Jesus says you have to have faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain. The Bible never says you have to have a deeper faith. You have to have a, a more mature faith. It never says that. It just says you have to have faith, a simple faith. In fact, actually, one time Jesus even says, if you have faith as simple as a child, you can come to me. And then another time he says, faith the size of a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed that produces a really large tree. It's never about the size. It's about the object we have faith in, not the depth of our faith. And the author is saying that we have to completely have faith on him. And he will direct you when we have faith in him. He will direct us to where we should go and what we should do. So in verse 23, he continues on. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, uh, and last week we actually began with this as we were reiterating, he said this very same thing. Our, our hope is not uncertain. Actually, it's quite the opposite. We have every reason to believe that God is rock solid, that he won't change, that we can have faith in who he is. Remember, we can look at God's character. It takes some doing of your own homework to actually look at God's character. But in the Bible, we have reference after reference after reference of time after time that God has proven himself faithful to his promises. He always comes through. We can trust and know his character because of what is written down. That's why it's there for us. Yeah, it's a lot of information to wade through. But if you're willing to do that homework, like I said, God has proven himself trustworthy and faithful more times than we can count. So many falsely believe that God is out to get them, that he's this wrathful or vengeful God, that he just wants to see you squirm. If those who would believe these things just read his word, you would find the opposite is true. The author tells us that we can have a complete confidence in God because he has proven again and again worthy of our trust so next time you find yourself doubting, you can look back in the word and see what God has done. Remind yourself of who he is. And if your faith feels like it's on the rocks, it's probably not him who has changed. We know that God does not change. It's us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why have we changed? 
what has changed in us. In verses 24 and 25, we see our third and final let us statement. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let us consider one another. First, he told us we can enter God's presence confidently. And then he told us that we can have a source of true hope. And now he tells us that we cannot forget one another. Now, I often say that God has left you here because he's got something that he has planned for you, okay? He's gonna do something in you and he's gonna do something through you. It's the reason why you're here. God's gonna do something in you and through you. You are not insignificant. You have a purpose. And here the author says, don't forget those who are around you, your fellow believers. Your interaction with other believers should be twofold, as he says. He says, number one, we should be stirring up love. And secondly, we should be stirring up good works. So here's a bit of an honesty. Don't say the answer. This is just a head nod one, okay? Have you ever been around somebody that um, goes to church and the emotion they stir up in you is not love. In fact, it's something quite different. You ever met one of those people that they don't stir up love? They stir up an entirely different emotion. That's not who we're called to be in Christ as his representatives. And the author's telling us that we should be stirring up. Now, I've baked a couple of things once or twice in my life. I've made cakes. I've made cupcakes. I've made brownies, pancakes, waffles. I've made a bunch of delicious and wonderful things. And the one thing they all had in common is I had to stir them to complete the batter mixture before they were ready to bake. And you want to know what? I found out stirring doesn't happen accidentally. In fact... To do stirring well, it takes intentionality. You have to do stirring very purposely if you've ever baked anything. Have you ever eaten a piece of bread or a cake or maybe a brownie or some other thing and you found a clump of unmixed ingredients? You, ever, you remember that taste in your mouth. We, we, we remember bites like those. So my boys, when they were learning to make different things, one of the things, brownie, uh, one time uh, we were, uh, Alicia and I were eating some things and we, we bit baking soda. You ever, you ever found a clump of unmixed baking soda? You remember that. And unfortunately, what happens is it ruins the whole experience of eating because now you're cautiously eating like, am I going to find, am I going to find eggshell? Am I going to find, you never know what. So now you're, you're no longer focused on the enjoyment of the brownie and the good job that the person did. Now you're like, what am I about to ingest? This is what our author is telling us, that we have to purposely Mix in love and good works. And we have to mix well, and to do so takes effort on our part. Remember, mixing is part of preparation. It's not the end result, though it generally affects it. Show one person love. Push another to good works. And do for them what you want to see done in yourself. Now, you may not see a result of someone right now, you might have to show someone love and good works and be nice to them for years before you ever see a change. But even if you don't see a change in them, you'll find that you change as well. In verse 25, he says very familiar words. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but as exhorting one another and so much more till you see the day approaching. So what has probably been the most quoted verse over the past couple of years, given our recent circumstances with government shutdowns, um, Regardless of what is going around you, our author reminds us that we should purposefully be rubbing elbows with one another regularly. We should be seeing each other. Now, if I could use the stirring analogy one more time, we are each individual ingredients. In another letter, we are actually called uh, 
individual members, body parts, actually, is what he calls it, of a corporate body. And what the author is trying to say is that maybe you are baking powder, the ingredient that we use to make things rise up, to get things moving, to keep life from being flat and dense. But baking powder has a very strong taste all by itself. And it's not useful by itself. It actually has to be mixed with other ingredients to be useful. And that's the way we are individually, that we were designed to be in harmony with other people, to be mixed well with them, so that we come together and make something amazing. And I've met so many that say that they can't believe in Jesus because churches let them down, that church isn't just for, isn't for them, that because churches hurt them, that, they're, that the people in church are a bunch of hypocrites, and that they're better off alone. And I hate to be the one to burst your bubble, but God feels very differently about that very thing. In fact, multiple times throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, he points to the fact that we should be rubbing elbows with one another regularly. We should be coming in contact with it. In the Old Testament, there's a verse that I'm reminded of. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And there are many other verses. And the Bible makes it clear that we were made for Christian community, that we may often want to deny it. And I told you earlier that when we got to verse 26, we would refer back to verse 10. So let's look at 26 first. 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So this verse actually harkens back to chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, if you were here with us in chapter 6. In verse 10, we saw that Jesus offered one sacrifice, that he will never again have to make another sacrifice. Never has to. Our author is once again telling us that if we have heard the truth, that despite knowing the truth, we decide to continue on sinning purposely, willfully, that there is no new sacrifice that's going to be made that can help us. No new truth that can enlighten us. And what he's telling us is he's saying, Christian, if you willingly sin, even though you know better, well, you shouldn't be surprised with the results or where it leads you. You can't blame anybody else except for yourself. So remember next time you feel temptation to blame God or to blame other people for your situation, it's actually our fault, typically. It was once said that if I could kick the person in the tail that causes me the most problems, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. If I could kick the person in the tail that causes me the most problems, I couldn't sit down for a week. With that, let's close with two questions. Number one, what band-aid solutions have you been using to fix your faith? We each innately know that we have a broken relationship with God. We try to fill that gaping hole with anything and everything the world can offer. And it leaves us still empty at the end of the day. And the question is, what have you been trying to fill that hole with? Maybe more pointedly, will you allow him to come in and fix it? It can be scary at first but it'll be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And second question, how are you stirring others towards love and good works? God has left you here both to work in and through you. Your life has a purpose here. It's not an accident. You and I were designed for community, not just with God, but with other believers as well. The entire Bible clearly points this out. We're being called to instill into others love, to show them what love really looks like and to bring out the best in them. So the question I have for you is how 
Can you do that this week? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and the strong reminder Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.